Protection Breakfast Club with a uh, good friend Travis LeBlanc. Super, super, super duper smart guy. Giant brain. Giant yeah. brain. Uh, how, tell me how you met him. I met him at a uh, event his former firm put on. Uh, you know, Giovanni Buttarelli, the former like super privacy. He was the speaker. Um, uh, and I went and I actually sat next to Travis or across from him at the event. Giovanni, somebody I knew, let's talk about amazing. That guy was incredible. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, man, we just hit it off, became friends. Like, you know, we were both living in DC at the time and uh, he'd worked for the Obama administration and done some interesting things and been a campaigner. He's really close to uh, Kamala Harris and, and that sphere of people. Like he's one of the most connected guys in our business. And he kind of goes about his work you know, kind of quietly, you know, like he's not out there splashing or doing like all kinds of like goofy stuff. And like uh, me, for example. I was chatting with him in pre-production yeah. and, uh, and he was talking about his life now. Um, and you're right. It's, it's a lot, it's, it's, he is well connected and, and he's got a lot going on in his personal, in his, uh, in his career. But, you know, you look at all of us, he's waking up walking downstairs going to to work in his basement and taking care of his child with his wife and then he goes to bed again and starts over the and next repeat day. and also like awesome family man good dad like he's he's a he's a he's a thing and i look up to him in a lot of ways and um uh, i'm fucking excited he's here i wish we would have had him on sooner i know we had to like figure it out schedule wise um top 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 thinker man like he's super smart and uh he's done work for me like 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 at previous jobs the guy is like on top of the fact that he's super brilliant like you know theoretical and gets to law and like he is like super practical and gives you actionable advice you know he, you know like it's like he doesn't waste your time as a client either which i think is super important so yeah. it's all around top lawyer man probably one of the best at our at our thing for sure he's great he's great Talk to me about uh, Inspector Gadget's um, brown gloves. Did I misremember? I thought they were white, but maybe I'm just confused. This is, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't um, purport to have really researched <laughs> this photo so well. Yeah, they should have scrutinized these, man. I want accuracy. My my children, my daughters have been into the show lately, and so uh, I, I love got, Inspector Gadget. That's awesome, man. Yeah. That song, Go Gadget, Go, man. Like it's one, it was one of my favorite cartoons as a kid by far. Have you seen it recently? It's very forward-thinking in a weird way. His daughter, his uh, niece Penny, has a book that is like an iPad. She has an iWatch. She's communicating <laughs> with the dog. They both have iWatches. They're FaceTiming. Doctor Claw has a FaceTime machine. Like this is 1981 or whatever when this show was. Like. I, I find myself looking at it going, Did at least we know where Steve Jobs got his inspiration. It's like, is Steve Jobs 
watching Inspector Gadget and creating the iPad. <laughs> Inspector Gadget, the greatest innovator who ever lived. I'm really impressed. I mean, he really is an innovator, though. Like, I mean, I'm looking at this whole thing. He's got an antenna on his thumb and like a laser. So like it's a the whole phone. thing. That's the gadget phone. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. And like uh, just I, I did not. I'm going to rewatch this show. I, I watched it as a kid. I, li I did. And I loved it. And Mr. Claw, like all, the whole thing, but like Dr. Claw, the whole thing, but like, um, there it is. <laughs> all right. Keanu, Keanu says bye. Keanu said bye. Come here, buddy. Come, come. So I, I know it. Come, come, come. Okay. Oh, um. come, come. Okay, okay. All right. So we should end the episode on bye. <laughs> no, but here's what it is. I'm glad we're doing this intro. Keanu's popped up. So the road behind my house, like the alley, is getting like, they're chopping up the asphalt and all the curb and they're redoing it. And there's like dudes walking around banging and cracking. And every time they slam that, there's a, I don't know, man, I don't know what the equipment is. a massive machine back there destroying the road. And my whole house shakes. The whole house shakes. And so when he feels that or sees the dudes, that's what happens. Uh Shout out to Keanu for uh, keeping you safe. Keanu, man. Thank you. I feel safe. Anyway, let's get Travis on here, man, right. uh, and, and get the show on the road. Good stuff. Here we are. We're here. We're here. <laughs> With Travis LeBlanc, who's a partner at Cooley. Uh, and the episode is Inspector Gadget. You can see the guy behind me. The guy. The guy. <laughs> main guy. Um, yeah. Like, Travis is as far from Inspector Gadget generally uh, as someone could could come but I loved when we were talking about framing up talking with you Travis you mentioned kind of go go gadget arguments you know that you have to pull out of thin air um and so let's just can we start there and start like a little bit just a little bit early like um maybe in law school you went to Yale which is known for like theoretical approach to law school so like how did that inform like your career decisions and your like desire to kind of go into the, the kind of world that you are now. Yeah, well, first of all, great to see both of you. Awesome to be here with you. And thanks for the, the invitation and looking forward to seeing uh, which one of us gets more Inspector Gadget um, uh, hints into our, into the conversation today. Um, You're so the one with the big brain. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was good. That counts for two. <laughs> I got that. I got that. I'm going to give you two for that one. Um, so uh, I went to Yale knowing that I wanted to have a career in law and in policy. You know, I mean, I will admit in two seconds, as I think anyone, except maybe the dean of Yale Law School, that a lot of what we learn in at, at a law school like Yale is not black letter traditional law. Um, it's more about understanding our, um, our, our system of laws and understanding the, the purpose of law and what's the policy behind this or what's the court trying to do here or what incentives you know, is the legislature trying to um, encourage in the population. Um, so I think for me, you know, what it really reflected was a, um, a desire for a career that would balance law and policy. And I think that my career actually has done that, of kind of going back and forth between the government and the private sector, 
and in both of them, working on issues, not just of law, but literally issues of policy uh, as well. And thinking about how you know, we can advance um, an area of law or how we can help, you know, help ensure that there are um, policies in place that incentivize the kinds of lawfulness um, that we would like to see. Um, and lastly, I'll just note that, you know, it kind of gives you this, it, it kind of helped me to see that the law is not static. It changes. Um, it largely is in the eye of the beholder. And we have the ability to impact it either on large scale, right, you know, an act of Congress, or at a very microcosm level, filing a brief, having a meeting you know, on, you know, uh, you know, with, with a, a um, elected official or a regulator. And I, I think that that, um, that appreciation for the ability of a lawyer to change what is the law may have dominated over what is the law today. So that is very informative. And I love the idea of like having a curriculum that is about more theoretical thinking than like the practical application and practice of law, which I think anybody can learn. That part is easy, I think. Um, I'm a law professor and I have been for some time. Uh, and I used to teach a class on legal philosophy, which goes along the lines of what you're talking about. And one of the things I would always ask my students to, I've asked my students to read is the Dred Scott decision, which is long, and infamous and horrifying insofar as lawyers on the Supreme Court, uh, so judges uh, who studied at schools like yours and Harvard and wherever, uh, essentially make brilliant legal arguments about human beings as chattel property um, and how the law and legal system recognizes that, right? It, 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 you know, and I'm sure most lawyers read Dred Scott at some point in their careers, right? I have a lot of trouble, Travis, sometimes with the idea of like reconciling all of the like theoretical components of justice and fairness that our Western legal systems claim to be based on and, uh, and in furtherance of when I can read a decision like that, that's not 500 years old. Um, and it essentially quantify the value of a person as something equal to a goat, right? And so how do, you know, I'm interested in like how we can like reconcile like the promise of the law and the application of it, where, which we know has been disproportionately applied uh, in a negative way against some groups versus others. Just your general thoughts. I know this isn't privacy, but we brought up theoretical thinking. So here we are. Yeah. You said, look, it, that is one of the, you know, biggest challenges that we have faced um, in looking back over history, right? You know, I mean, I think it was Chief Justice Taney that wrote that decision in, in Dred Scott. Um, he, he, you know, he did not go to Yale, by the way. <laughs> I don't think so, <laughs> at least. So before you accuse him of going to school with me, I, I, in fact, I don't even know that he went to law school. To <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think that may be accurate. I don't think he went to law school, but I could be wrong about that. Um, you heard me say a few minutes ago that law is in oftentimes the eye of the beholder. Um, you know, I think if you asked me to rationalize 
the decisions that have been made, I would tell you that, you know, in each of those instances, it was in the eye of the beholder, right? And that's what they, what they thought at the time. Obviously, I do not support that decision. It was not rightly um, decided. And, you know, yet we have a 14th Amendment now, right, that has been the same since it was um, ratified and gets widely different, it gets wildly different interpretations depending upon who read it, right? In 18, what, 96, somewhere in there, we get Plessy versus Ferguson, right? Which is interpreting, you know, you know, separate but equal, you know, the, the equal protection clause interpreting and he's saying, you know, and, and looking at it and kind of coming to the conclusion that you can have separate but equal. And it's not until 1954-ish, you know, you know, when you get Brown versus Board where they say separate but equal is inherently unequal. It's the same text. It's the same constitutional history that was that was there. It's the same, you know, yet we somehow have literally opposite um, um, decisions. So, you know, I, I can't tell you that, you know, I've got the overarching theory that links them together other than to say that you know, many people have observed that, you know, the state of Supreme Court precedent is what, whatever a majority of the court says it is at the time. And that may be the most rational way to reach it rather than trying to explain, you know, how it is that, you know, well, um, you know, well-educated uh, jurists could come to contradictory conclusions on the same facts and the same legal precedent in history. Yeah, and I think two points of fact, you're right, Tanny didn't go to law school. He read law under some judge. <laughs> um, he did go to Dickinson's college undergrad. I'm looking at this on Wikipedia, so hopefully it's right. And then the other thing is, is and I had forgotten this, it was a 7-2 decision. <laughs> like, you know, like, this, is, like, this is outrageous, right? Um, uh, and so, now I appreciate your thoughts on that because to me, it colors a lot of my work in privacy and, and, and like, the, like the legacy of marginalization is something I'm very conscious of in our practice. And I'm a policy guy too, um, which is like trying to ensure that we don't repeat, obviously maybe not at the severity level of the mistakes of the past, but we don't repeat some of the patterns of the past, which include like exclusion of meaningful voices just because they're not in the majority. And I think in privacy, that's a big issue, right? Like, I think it's a big issue. I think there's a elite privileged group of like privacy gurus we're in it right that have our point of view on like what's right and very seldomly do we take into account i think as a as a profession well seldomly strong but not often enough do we take into account like feedback from the people that we're protect whose privacy we're protecting right there's a lot of like i know bestish in my opinion um around our profession which could go down a scary path, not aligned with like people's actual expectations in the world and could potentially harm vulnerable people in the name of privacy. One of the examples of this for me is like privacy as a luxury and the idea that like we should pay for things um, so that we don't pay for it by being monetized, right? And in theory, that sounds great, right? Buy an iPhone, it's $1,200 and it's gonna be much more privacy, whatever, than an Android, right? 95% of the world's population can't afford it, right? Probably more. And so like, 
that's an example for me of how like some of this manifests, which is like, we'll build the best thing, but it's only for the rich. Okay. Well, like what does, like, how is that in furtherance of the greater good then? You know, this is how I think those types of themes and patterns sneak into our daily work, right? Which is privacy and luxury, you know, freemium services being, you know, potentially uh, uh, like less functional or a, a, a diminished experience from others. And I know there's laws out there like GDPR, which suggests you can't do that. But like in the U.S., we don't have the same framework, right? And this so tricky, this is a tricky balance because the gadgets that yeah. we are that we are accustomed to um, thinking about and working with, you know, as as tech lawyers, are so complicated, and the tech itself is so f- forward thinking that we're in this situation where like your, your, your point is so accurate. Like there's this group of, of uh, sort of un, massive group of data subjects where, whereby they're using a lot of technology and gadgets and they don't have a sense for how they work. We barely have a sense for how they work. We work for these companies and represent these companies. And sometimes the tech is so complicated how, how are we supposed to balance the fact that we really are the ones in, when we're product counseling in that capacity um, or when we're uh, kind of advising on a policy matter? How are, we, how are we not supposed to kind of try to take the angle of what is of the greater good for the data subject as a <laughs> sort of loose term versus like... Uh, how, how, and I'm not quite, it's sticky because I'm not quite sure how else to do it because I can't communicate effectively in a privacy policy. It's, it, I can try and I can communicate things in the privacy policy, but we all know that only goes so far. Our grandparents, people, will, like tons of people will never ever um, really get in there and engage and understand the privacy policy. It's there for a lot of other reasons and, it, and it's important, but how do we... I don't know how we find the balance, right, of where we should wade in and actually help. And is that our own ethics and morals or our companies or our business? Like, so maybe or we maybe we're, uh, I'm interested to hear what, what Travis thinks, I mean, as, as, a, as an advisor to businesses too. Yeah, I mean, I, um, uh, look, we all know that no one is going to inspect every privacy policy, right? That would be maddening for anyone to do, and it would take up a massive amount of time and there have been numerous studies out there about the amount of time it would take all of us to read every privacy policy of every website or app you know you know or or device now that we use we'd be here forever um so clearly the privacy policy is or the privacy statement is unlikely to be an effective avenue for communicating you know values to the overwhelming majority of users consumers, subscribers, uh, patrons, whatever you want to to call them. Um, I have said on more than one occasion, including most recently last week for Data Privacy Day, that privacy is the civil rights issue of the 21st century. And and when I say that, um, it it, it, it is imbued with all of the um, uh, of the history that we have had around civil rights in this country 
and the issues that we are creating today for the future. And what I mean by that is, Pedro, to one of the issues that you were discussing is kind of the inequities that are, that are there. One of the problems we've had, in, in my view, in the way that we have discussed privacy um, over the last decades in the US is it's really been controlled by the civil liberties um, uh, advocacy uh, community, which is not a bad thing. It's great to have them involved, but the civil rights communities have been divorced from it. They, they've been focused on the, you know, the, the issues impacting you know, communities of you know, color and women and um, other you know, ethnic or religious minorities in the real world today while not spending as much time on it in the virtual world. And so one of the things we have to do, I think, is encourage you know, the more traditional civil rights organizations the more traditional civil rights focused, you know, companies and enterprises to focus on this issue, these issues around digital inequities and around privacy in particular. And similarly, we need to educate the civil liberties sides, the, you know, or more oriented people about the civil rights concerns and why it's important to recognize the inequities and pay for privacy, you know, in, in, in some instances. And, and similarly, recognizing that the only way you ever get to use online products is if you have an internet connection. Exactly. Which means thinking about the issues around actually getting access to online to be able to. So that we have to confront about how we approach privacy as a civil rights issue. And if, if we do that, then I think the role of the chief privacy officer or the product council focusing on privacy becomes one that is motivated by a protection of civil rights and not merely compliance. You know, and, and I think you know, for a, a, a while, sort of the commitment that we've seen from, from a lot has been around making sure we're just complying with the law, complying with the guidance that we've gotten from H, as opposed to moving it more into the civil rights, to the ethic realm of doing what we think is right. You know, being able to promote the values that we want to promote in society, make it a more proactive measure than a defensive, you know, compliance, traditional compliance type measure. And, and some companies have done that. Some companies have, have pulled that off that trying to make this about their values and others you know, have made it about compliance. And I think that what we'll see moving forward in the 21st century, we're certainly seeing it out of Europe, but what we'll see in the 21st century is more of a desire, more of a recognition that where we stand on privacy will ultimately be as important as where we stand on racial equality, right? Those two, you know, where we stand on gender equality where we stand on LGBTQ equality. Privacy will be up there in the same way because there will be some people that have complete access to it and some people that do not. How and long, how are we going to treat that is gonna be our challenge. Travis, how long do you think, and up Pedro too, how long do you think it will take us to get to that state? That, that's that's a, a very, um, that, like that that would be good you know if we got to that place 
how how long do we think it'll take to get there? I, I, you know, I tend to be an optimistic person, but in this case, I'm, I'm pessimistic because even if you look inside of companies and law firms and other organizations, a lot of like diversity and inclusion, which is more tied to the civil rights piece that Travis is talking about, efforts are really about protecting the company. And it lands disingenuously with me and lots of people of color, right? That it's basically a CYA exercise for the firm or for the company or whatever. Now, there are some companies to Travis's point that have meaningfully internalized like DNI as part of the corporate culture and, uh, of the company and made it make it a fundamental value because they've found a business proposition as to why it's important, which is the more we look like our customer, the better we are as a company. And that means we need employees uh, of all shapes, sizes, colors, creeds, whatever, right? Uh, to be here and be functional, be happy and meaningfully contribute so we can represent, uh, so we can uh, cater better to whatever our customer base is. Um, I think in privacy, Travis is 100% right. Like the chief privacy officer function. I've turned down several chief privacy officer jobs. And the main reason is I don't want to be a compliance goon for a company to just check a bunch of boxes um, and, uh, and make sure that they don't catch an FTC consent decree. Like that isn't interesting to me. Um, uh, what is more interesting is what Travis is talking about, what I think I have the opportunity to do here at Facebook, which is actually advance the privacy ethos and goals uh, in a way that actually drives the preservation and enhancement and improvement of people's privacy, uh, uh, private spaces um, and ability to exclude others from information that they're not interested in sharing. And so like, I'm super with Travis in the sense of like, it would be great to turn in that direction. I'm not optimistic that companies are investing in their privacy organizations with that in mind. Is now, I don't have the view Travis has, which is lots of companies. So I'd be interested to hear. I want to ask Travis about like, is there a sea change or a litigation or an investigation or a, a thing that happens with a large tech company that could advance the ball quickly on that? Or is it just like, a, I'm guessing it's probably a series of things, but I would like to know what, what you think about that. Yeah, look, I don't think that the invisible hand of the market is going to move this very quickly, right? On the other hand, a statutory or regulatory claw might, might pull us there a lot quicker. And, and what could that look like? Uh, I think, you know, baseline comprehensive privacy legislation in the United States could begin to push us, would, would actually push us substantially in that direction. Um, you know, we've seen the way the CCPA, you know, has changed the way that companies think about privacy, many of them just from a compliance measure, but there are provisions in the CCPA that, that have these civil rights components built into them, right? The, the, the idea that there's a basic um, uh, privacy right that everyone has and cannot be required to give up. That's your civil right, right? It's clearly within the CCPA. You have digital equity issues that are built into the CCPA about trade-offs, asking someone to give up their privacy, right? So, so that to me was a significant movement um, in the direction of recognizing 
the, the importance of privacy, of control over personal data and the sharing of that data in the 21st century. And I think if we had something like that at the federal level, which is unlikely as of today, but you know, we keep hoping for, we had something like that at the federal level, I think it could be, it could meaningfully move us in the direction of, um, in the direction of, you know, protecting privacy as a, as a civil right and a civil right. Those are great points. I just want to quickly call out the NAI. The NAI code has had things baked into it for 15 years that addressed some of these things. Well, clearly it's got, you know, a ways, there's other things uh, going on there, but I just want to, they don't get enough credit for creating a code that dealt with, you know, the use of data that could impact someone's credit or could impact someone's, you know, a financial impact to somebody because they're in a disparate situation or, or they don't, you know, have the ability to control things that are happening around them. So I, I think that's, we've talked a lot about the federal privacy law and whether that will be some sort of panacea or not. But I think at the end of the day, I agree with that point that that will be a thing that that moves things forward, it won't solve everything, but it'll-, it'll and, and look, like, I, you know, if I were writing, you know, the NAI code, I'd want it to go further than it is, but I can put that yeah. apart. When yeah. we don't have a federal law, when we don't have any law really, or very little law, you know, for an industry to step up, you know, and decide to come up with a code or something to work with is, is a good thing. You know, it's better than the wild, wild west, um, you know, to, to have, you know, an industry take responsibility for its own, um, its own self-policing. And unfortunately, it doesn't look like we're about to get anything anytime soon. And you guys have spoken about it more than enough as, you know, as have I about the likelihood of, of, you know, comprehensive data privacy legislation. I'm hopeful that, you know, when you have a House, a Senate and the White House, all controlled by Democrats, that, you know, there is a room for moving something, but, you know, there still will, you know, still need to get over, you know, preemption and a private right of action, right? These kinds of issues that seem to be the main impediments, yeah, to, to it proceed. And then, and then going, circling back to something we called out, Travis, earlier on, we have a conservative Supreme Court right now. So even if we create a law that works, then the interpretation of that law going up through that court will be very, It'll be interesting to see what happens then, you know, when we have matters and issues that arise um, that go up. It, this all reminds me of this, this West Wing episode called The Short List when they're picking a Supreme Court justice and they're picking this, these different candidates apart. And one of them has some privacy decision and, you know, a bunch of people are like privacy, you know, what like some like that, that pales in comparison to like you know, the issues they're talking about in the late 90s, their abortion issues, and they're like, you know, other things. And uh, the Rob Lowe character, go, he's a lawyer, and he goes on this long, amazing, like, sort of quote about how important personal privacy is in the digital age. It was well before its time, but it, it, it calls that quote back to me, you know, it, it calls that quote back because it, it's, it's exactly what you're saying. Uh, even if we, we sort of push it forward, we're going to uh, go through this really interesting push and pull when it comes to interpreting that law and seeing what would what would happen. Yeah, and I also don't think like privacy should be partisan. I know the reality, 
but like it just I, it seems to me like you know the, the privacy interpretation into the bill of rights is sound established law that isn't up for question in my opinion i mean i guess anything can be changed um uh, but like i i'm with travis completely right like uh, the need for a privacy, a national privacy law is obvious to me, um, not just for harmony uh, amongst, you know, so everybody can have equal rights. And the point I make is like, it's, I think it's absurd that like, if I live in California, you know, uh, Google, Facebook can treat me one way. And if I live in Texas, they can treat me another. Like that to me is just like bizarre, not saying the companies do, but I'm saying that's to me, the fact that they could is ridiculous. And so that's one point. And then to Travis's other point, like what an opportunity for the federal government to get something right. Like there's enough information and enough expertise and enough data out there at this point to show that like privacy enhancement um, and privacy protections will go a long way to doing what the damn Declaration of Independence says we all have a right to do, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Like we know these things are intertwined, right? And you mentioned abortion. Abortion is a privacy case. Like it's a privacy case, right? Like this is like abortion, not abortion. Uh, Roe v. Wade is a privacy case, right? Like, like so like look at privacy sprawling uh, kind of effect on just kind of like national consciousness. Um, and so, uh, yeah, like to your point about conservatives versus Democrats, like Roe v. Wade, anyway. Um, well, look, Pedro, I'm, I'm look, privacy should not be a partisan issue. In fact, every, virtually every poll that is done finds that it is overwhelmingly bipartisan. The issue itself is overwhelmingly bipartisan in this day and age. The impediments, you know, are, you know, not really unique to privacy. They are more about, you know, consumer protection statutes. You know, should states have the ability to each have their own laws? Should, you know, plaintiff's attorneys be able to have, you know, to use, to enforce these laws through private rights of action, right? That, those are two major impediments that are there. What we're seeing in the absence though is more states stepping up to the plate, you know, after California, right? I think in the last week or two, you know, we've seen, you know, you know, bills introduced and advancing in Virginia and New York and Washington for the third or fourth time. You know, all those are just those are just off the top of my head. What I suspect is also happening now that we're seeing legislation advancing and becoming in, being enacted across the world is we're seeing a lot of convergence on the basic theories about what would be fundamental to a, you know, to a privacy law. Um, you know, we're, we're starting to see that, you know, users should control their data. I mean, that seems to almost be a, a fundamental premise of each one that you should be able to request deletion, right? Those kinds of things are starting to, um, to, to come out a little bit more, which would hopefully make it easier to identify the major issues in, in federal legislation, over which I suspect you could get bipartisan agreement. And, and I think you're absolutely right. Like you're right. I mean, the, the issue is not agreeing on that privacy matters. It's all of the other kind of ancillary issues that come along with the idea of the national privacy law that become partisan. So I totally understand where you're coming from. All right, I'm going to lighten the mood and ask two questions that I think you're perfect to give feedback on, and I'm super interested. Um, Jeff Bezos, 
what is happening? Like, what, is, what does that mean for Amazon? Like, here's how I think of Jeff Bezos. The man built three businesses, not one, okay? Like he's built three, um, he, I read this this morning and somebody said he could be the best tech CEO ever. And I'm like, shit, he probably is. He built AWS, that's its own business. It's a sticky top tier lead cloud infrastructure platform, whatever. Obviously Amazon, like the, like the bookstore and the store itself. And then the third business is he's probably got the third largest logistics operation or fourth. I mean, I don't know what the actual number is, but he's got easily top 10 logistics operations on earth at this point. You can get overnight shipping in Taiwan with Amazon Prime, like in Taiwan. And I, you know, so like, what, what do you think's going on there? Is he going to get political? Is he looking to be like a Larry Ellison type chairman? What, any yes, idea what's happening there? He has a space business also. Is that what it is? He's going to go out to the moon or whatever, Mars or whatever? Like, what, what do you guys think? Both of you, I'm interested. Just what do you think about that? Go yeah, ahead. I was going to say the space business, Andy. You, you, you took that one from me uh, pretty quickly. Look, I don't know Jeff Bezos, so I'm going to start there. I do not work at Amazon, so I'll put that out there as, as well. So I'm speculating uh, much like, like the rest of you. Uh, you know, number one, I suspect that it allows him to focus on some other endeavors, that when you're the day-to-day -day CEO of, you know, a large enterprise, you just can't do space, you know, would seem to be one. Um, you know, I, I don't hear the Washington Post coming, but he does own, you know, has an ownership in, interest in the Washington in the Washington Post. But there's also something to be said for knowing as a founder when to step down, right? Do you wait until it's, you know, really crumbling and then you say, okay, maybe now let's bring in someone. Or do you recognize, you know, when it's someone else's turn and it looks like the new CEO, I think his last name is Jazzy. Um, or Jassy, something along those lines. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's DJ Jazzy Jeff. <laughs> yeah, the new COO, Fresh Prince. Yeah, the. <laughs> um, but 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 I think that uh, you know, he's been at the company for twenty plus years. 27, 27. You know, and oh, you mean the new up, CEO? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, right, and you know, and but and he's built up the you know what is probably the largest. Um, business unit within Amazon today, AWS, I believe is the largest. Definitely the most profitable. <laughs> yeah, the most profitable. Yeah, the, the, the most profitable. But, you know, there are, you know, we could go through the list of, you know, sort of reinventions or expansions that Amazon has had. It was first a bookstore, then it kind of became a store of everything, right? We kind of go there for everything. Uh, you know, AWS, uh, you have, you know, when we thought everything was going online, then you get an acquisition of, of Whole Foods, right? And you start opening up Amazon stores, you know, literal physical locations. Uh, then you, you know, then we see, you know, this, this infrastructure, this delivery infrastructure that not only includes, you know, you know, autonomous units, but, you know, has, you know, it, it, it's paying a lot of people, you know, you know, to, to drive, you know, and deliver products and not relying upon, you know, the postal service or FedEx to do so. Um, you know, I saw there was an FTC action uh, yesterday uh, in, in involving them. So I don't want to, you know, disregard that, you know, the FTC, you know, took some action yesterday, but it's a recognition of just how expansive that enterprise is that if you wanted to focus on, you focus your efforts on, on something like space, it would be hard, I, I think, to do. Um, you know, and I think it's Jeff Bezos who, who made the comment some time ago about how, look, you know, one of the great things about being a CEO 
is, you know, every day you only have to make like two good decisions. You make two good decisions that are profitable and, and that's, and you're done for the day. Uh, you know, but, but there's a lot of meetings where maybe, maybe, maybe not some not so good decisions. You know, I think the ability to kind of focus in on some other things could make him, you know, will he be a politician? Um, you know, I don't know. Uh, will he, you know, will he engage in other endeavors, whether they're philanthropic or, you know, you know, in space um, remains to be seen. I was going to add to that. I, I, here's what I hope he does. I don't know what he will do. They, they were dabbling in a healthcare joint venture with uh, like JP Morgan and Berkshire Hathaway. I don't think that's going to happen anymore, but I hope that they use their logistics prowess to, for public health purposes. So like we're clearly in a situation where that's needed uh, and, and it would be great if someone like Amazon leads an effort to get shots in people's arms. Like, I think that's dope. Yeah. I hope that's, I, I hope that's what he does. And then I hope you mentioned this, Travis, I hope there's a philanthropic arm to what he's doing. Bill Gates did, did that, uh, you know, you have to imagine that. And then the third thing, I think he's going to keep lifting weights. That guy's super jacked. <laughs> so, yeah. so he's going to, you know. He's, two to three good decisions a day. Well, yeah. once, you're done. Hey, once you're done with those two or three, <laughs> see you later. <laughs> he's on the uh, Nordic track after that. <laughs> I hope we also fucking I, I, like. I hope we go to the moon, and I hope like there's an Amazon Prime logo on something. Like I, I like deliver me to the moon on Amazon Prime is something I'd be super. Well, Shane, our buddy Shane can help with that with the space. Yeah, let's go to Mars. Let's go to the moon. All this stuff that he's <laughs> he's got his eyes up towards the sky and like i think he's an incredibly privileged position to hopefully like you know kind of challenge the future that way like we know we we have to go outwardly so well, last question um your firm travis has a huge presence in california well known as like a super silicon valley like you know uh, i don't know like support critical infrastructure for like silicon valley and like the exponential growth that's happened there in our in our lifetimes and so far as like innovation and business like the you know, top five businesses in, in the country, we know what they are and where they are. Um, and so like, I keep like Oracle, the company I used to work for just announced late last year, they're gonna move their headquarters to Texas. Um, uh, Elon Musk moved, right? Like, or is leaving Texas or whatever. There's this talk about like flight from California. Uh, out of San Jose, out of the whatever. Like, are you seeing that? Like, is it real? Is it hype? What does it mean? Is it good to have a high concentration of like knowledge and expertise in one place? Is it better if it's distributed? What are your general thoughts? Is the exodus from California real? I'd be interested to hear what you think there. And if it is, like, what do you think of some of the implications of that? Yeah, you know, it's hard to tell Pedro in this COVID environment when we're all working from home. It's hard to know exactly where people are. And we've certainly seen a you know, I'd say a mass, you know, a substantial exodus from cities around the country, right, you know, during the pandemic. So, you know, I would tell you that I've probably seen just about as many, you know, people fleeing California as New York, you know, in terms of being in the middle of the country somewhere. In fact, you know, it blew my mind, but we've started getting applications from associates that want to work virtually permanently from some state in the country. They never intend to go into an office. Now that creates taxing issues that everyone's trying to figure out right now, which is, you know, if, if you're an employee in Michigan, but we don't have an office in Michigan, you're practicing from Michigan, um, you know, who, who, who pays taxes? Which taxes do you pay? And also, you know, what if you're not a member of the Michigan bar? 
you know, in your practice admissions. That creates all its own, its own issues um, there. Long time ago, Cooley recognized that uh, there were a number of tech sectors that had popped up around the country that were not Silicon Valley. Right, you know, silicon. You know, they have all these nice names, right? Silicon Beach, you know, or uh, you know, uh, uh, Silicon Street, right? You've got all these diff different in different areas of, of the country, and so over the years, we've actually opened up offices in a lot of what I will call the tech hubs, such as Seattle. Or Reston, Virginia was our first East Coast. Reston, Reston Valley, man. That, like, that that's, where I, that's where I used to be, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Or Reston, or or New York City, um, you know. And you know, we 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 have offices in Boston, right? You know, we think about the same. Cooley's very competitive in our market here in Boston. Yeah. So we we have opened up into the other tech sectors, recognizing that California wasn't going to be the centerpiece for that in perpetuity. And ultimately recognizing that to some degree, every company has to be a tech company. Every company has a website. Every company is collecting data and using data. At some point, every company has to be innovative today or someone will come in and disrupt you. And once, you know, kind of accepting that, we've migrated to a lot of places. We don't yet have an office in Texas. Um, you know, we don't have an office in Miami, which is the other big one that you hear people you know, exiting too. But I believe, you know, you know, without, you know, speaking for, you know, our firm and our leadership, you know, my suspicion is if that, if those sectors grow there, if, if that's where tech goes, we will go with them. Um, you know, the future for our firm that is uh, public is that, you know, one of the, the biggest growth areas that we see for tech will be New York. New York just really, you know, it, it's, it's got a lot, the tech community in New York is thriving, but it is really set to blow up. Um, in the, in the coming years, and so you know our presence there, I believe, will you know we're quite you know we have a, a, a large office there, but I believe it will in Hudson Yards, but I believe you know will grow even more um, into the into the next few years there. Let me put a plug in for Atlanta. Um, uh, since I've been here, I've been here about two years. The Salesforce Tower went up. Google is building a, not a headquarters, but a massive uh, operation here. Microsoft is, Facebook obviously is here. Um, that's for, oh, Amazon has a big presence here. Oracle is here. This is the, this is the biggest tech hub in the Southeast by far. And I live in it, right? But here, tying this back to our original conversation, it's also, I don't know the statistic, but it has to be one of the greatest concentrations of black, and people of color intellectual power in the country. This is the smartest brown city I've ever lived in. And the talent doesn't want to leave. I don't want to leave. When I was, when I, one of the things that Facebook and I had to negotiate carefully was the fact that I'm staying right here. Um, and so for your firm and for tech companies out there watching this podcast, Atlanta is a great place to put a building and hire some people if you're really passionate about hiring people of color and non-traditional kind of path folks, because um, we have a lot of brilliant, smart people here. Just look, and Pedro, you know, look, look, we can all see your huge, massive house that you're in back there. <laughs> That's right. So let, That's me, right. let me tell you, I mean, the echo, you know, Andy and I have been just absorbing this echo from all those rooms. <laughs> You know, there. Let's admit how much one can afford. Oh my you know, To have, you know, for you know, you know, in Atlanta, with respect to just the quality of life, it's just yeah. much cheaper 
than certainly California. Yes. Yeah. Taxes aren't too bad. And I mean, look, not to put a feather in, a, in my own hat, but like, yes, I moved from, I lived in DC the last 10 years before moving here, lived in a beautiful apartment on the Northeast, beautiful capital. It was 750 square feet, you know, <laughs> something stupid like that. I live in a much larger home with garages and things and garages, Andy, you heard the S at the end. Garage is bathrooms and things. And I live, I live alone with my dog and like, you know, my girlfriend comes around or whatever, but like your point, I pay less for, I paid less for this place than my apartment. I didn't know that the city of Atlanta was sponsoring this. Yeah, man, shout out to Atlanta. But shout out out to Atlanta. Shout out to, you know, uh, the success of the Atlanta Falcons over the years. Oh, man. Everything, uh, Holman and Finch. I mean, great, great city. So (laughs) we have to let Travis go. But uh, hey, man, (laughs) thanks for joining us. Thanks for great conversation. I'll say this before we go, and I know we're going to talk about it again, but like, thanks for doing this, man. You're one of my good, good friends. And I think of you as a thought leader on so many issues and we should have had you on earlier. Scheduling is what it is, but like, thank you, man. No worries. Look, I'm so, it's so great to be here to see both of you. Uh, You know, I consider you a good friend as well. And, you know, certainly someone that is forward thinking and, you know, pushes me, you know, frankly, to think differently about everything that I do, whether it's uh, with respect to, to privacy or just to, to life and, uh, you know, the profession. Thanks. Thanks it's mutual. It's mutual. All right, Travis, thank you so much. Thanks, man. Really meant okay. it. Appreciate you being here, bro. Thanks. No problem. All right. Bye-bye.